Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to kind of pick up on an earlier discussion we had with Dr. Mark Bauerline. Now, those of you who keep track of this podcast will remember that we talked to him about his book, The Dumbest Generation, and then his follow-up book on on the kids are not okay, on how kids essentially, because they've been raised by screens, by social media, are, are being mentally transformed by the digital environments they grow up in. And so I wanted to continue this discussion because I found that so many people want to have practical discussions on how we navigate this digital age. And so I contacted uh, author Chris Martin, who has this brand new book out. It's called Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media. And it's a really, really fascinating uh, book. Now, Chris Martin is a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers and a social media marketing and comms consultant. He's led social media strategy at Lifeway Christian Resources, and he's advised some of the foremost Christian leaders and authors on digital content strategy. He writes regularly at www.termsofservice.social, and he lives outside Nashville, Tennessee, with his wife Susie, their daughter Magnolia, and their dog Rizzo, thus says his biography on the back of the book. Now, it's really interesting because Chris lives in the digital worlds that he's critiquing, and he admits that for, for many of us, and almost for all of us in some senses, the digital world is now inescapable. And yet he lays out in his book what we should do about that, how we should approach these digital worlds, and what we should recognize about the way these digital worlds are impacting the way that we live. So without any uh, further commentary from me, here is my conversation with Chris Martin on his book, Terms of Service. So just to start off, this has been a really, really interesting book for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first of which, it, it's written in a way that makes it incredibly accessible to the average reader. So a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, we had Mark Bauerline on his book, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, which covers some of the same material your book did. But I wanted to ask, is your book Terms of Service written the way that it is in the hopes that huge numbers of people will use it actually to alter their online behavior? That would be an overstatement of expectation for myself, whether for good or for ill. I don't I don't have any sort of expectation that huge numbers of people give a rip about what I think, frankly. But I wrote it so that it would be as accessible and easy to understand for people as possible, because the whole point of the book is to help people better understand their relationship with the social internet and the social media that they consume on the social internet. So yeah, I mean, I want it to be widely accessible. I'm not, I'm, I'm not a super smart person. So for me to write in a super academic, heady way would be a bit disingenuous to begin with. But also it would be against the mission of the book. I think it's great when people want to write for a more academic or you know, college-educated level audience or something like that. But I realize that the vast majority of people who use social media are just normal folks who might have a high school or maybe a college degree. And they could use a book that's just written in kind of plain terms and tries to explain things as simply as possible. I, I wrote a book that I, that I would like to read. And I like reading books that make really complex ideas simple and don't make them any more complicated than they need to be. So I tried to write a book that someone like me would like to read, and I hope it's as valuable as possible for as many people as possible. But, you know, when it just comes down to sales numbers or whatever, I have no idea whether a thousand people or 10,000 people or a hundred thousand people are going to read this book. And frankly, I don't really care that much. I just want it to be as helpful as, as it can be for whoever, uh, whoever comes across it. 
Because one of the things that, that struck me reading it is I've read a lot of critiques of, of the digital age and a lot of discussions about what it's doing to the millennial generation, which would be I was born in 1988. I believe you were born in 1990. You mentioned one of the chapters. So we're kind of from the precise same cohort, although you would have been a bit further into it than me because the iPhone didn't come out till the year after I graduated high school. But one of the things that, that struck me is I think this is one of the first books I've read written by somebody who grew up more or less in the digital age. Because you cite a lot of great books like by Jonathan Haidt. Uh, there's a lot of these these really, really excellent cultural critiques that I think are inaccessible to a lot of a lot of people our age, broadly speaking. What did you what were you really focusing on when you were writing the book? Like you say that you didn't have any goals for for sales and stuff like that, but I'm sure you sat down and wrote 200 pages with some specific intents in mind. I said, so here's here's the perspective I came came to it from. I first read I read I read Technopoly by Postman when I was in college, but I didn't read Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman until I was probably about 27 or 26. It was, it was like roughly 2016, 2017, I believe, when I first read Amusing Ourselves to Death. And when I read Amusing Ourselves to Death, which for any listeners who don't know, was written in 1985, was published in 1985, mentions nothing about social media, naturally, because the internet was in its very nascent stages at that point, but the social media was not around at all. And so Postman is primarily talking about the television and how the television is changing culture, changing how we think, changing how we process information. I read that book roughly 20 years after, no, sorry, roughly 30 years after it was published. And I thought this book is more relevant today than it was then if people read between the lines. And Postman was not a Christian, though he was sympathetic to Christians and spoke to Christians quite quite frequently, as I have done some research kind of just on how he engaged with other people in his space. As I read his book, I said, man, it would be really helpful if there was somebody who wrote like Postman and thought like Postman in our modern age, Neil Postman died in the early 2000s and, and made a few comments on the internet, the information superhighway was the terminology he used often, which just sounds so funny and so dated, even though it was only about 20 years ago that we were using that language. He talked about the information superhighway in a few, in a few public addresses and, and maybe even some articles right before his death. But largely, he, we never got you know his perspective on the modern social internet. And so I thought, man, I would love to read somebody who writes and thinks like Postman, but also has a Christian worldview because I'm a Christian. And and I think that like I learned from Jonathan Haidt and Gene Twenge and plenty of other people who are not believers. But I do think that that our relationship with the social internet has unique impacts and applications for Christians. And because I am one, I was like, man, I'd, I'd really love to write a book that can speak to Christians, but is not a theology of social media to where a non-Christian would feel like they're stepping into a foreign land. But the, but I'm not going to hide my Christian worldview either, A, because it'd be pretty impossible in a book like this, and B, because I don't think it needs to be hidden. I come across worldviews and books I don't agree with all the time and still find the books helpful. And so as I wrote it, I was like, man, I want to write this not only for Christians and you know for a church-going person, though I think it is helpful for them, I want to write it for my neighbor or for somebody who, you know, might not be antagonistic toward Christianity, but also would not call themselves a Christian either. And so I wrote it very much like, man, what if there was a modern Neil Postman who had a Christian worldview? Now, if Dr. Postman was still around, he and I would disagree on, on a few things. For instance, he often opted out. He was a Luddite in a lot of ways and 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 kind of reveled in that. I am not. I, I try to engage with a lot of these platforms in more redemptive ways rather than abandoning them entirely, which would 
he would he would disagree with me, I think, on that engagement a little bit. And nor do I claim to be anywhere near his level of like intellect. Again, like I, I said, I'm I, I engage with friends and colleagues and who write and think in this space who are far smarter than I am. But what I just want to try to do is take the ideas of Postman, bring them forward to the 21st century and write them in a way that's easily accessible for people who, you know, maybe they only read two or three books a year, but they're on social media two or three hours a day. And so that's really kind of the perspective I came to with it and, and how I tried to um, position myself throughout the writing of it. It's very interesting because you at one point say, you know what, I'd be perfectly happy if people read this book and got off social media. And then you said, maybe I should too, but I just love it too much. But it was really hard to get through these 200 pages and not reach the conclusion that that was the obvious unspoken conclusion of all of the information you present. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you is if you consider the fact uh, that, you know, the, you got these massive corporations, you know, like Facebook that are hiring neuroscientists and paying them six figure salaries with the express purpose of attempting to, to hook kids to get them to spend more time as, as you as you kind of lay out one of your chapters right Their entire point is how can we get kids in front of their screens longer and they know their internal studies have revealed that this is bad for kids but they really don't care. Like this is a form of vulture capitalism that has always existed, but has never had this much power and this much breath. I think you, I think you said a quarter of the world's population are on Facebook. I forget the precise number. So how, even though, even though I know you're not a Luddite, how can somebody read your book and not reach the conclusion that for most people, this is simply too addictive and is designed to be too addictive to not just make the decision of maybe this is just robbing me of too many aspects of my life and I should just not be on social media. I think it's a totally fair application of the book. However, I don't think it's the only application. And when you get into conversations like this, how how they often go is anytime you say anything bad about social media, and I know this because I've been writing about social media online for a number of years, and this is always the retort. I write about social media in my newsletter or on a website, and then I share the link about that from that article that I wrote on a social media platform, people, you know, they like guffaw and make the age old annoying dad joke of, as you say, on social media. And it's like the idea that we're not allowed to critique a platform while also using it is ridiculous. We, we live in this zero sum day where if you are if you are against something in its general trajectory, people assume you have to engage with it. Not at all. And I just don't think that's the case. I don't think that you have to totally abstain from something because it is generally used for ill and bent toward ill. I just don't think that's true. People abuse alcohol all the time. That doesn't mean everybody should always stay away from alcohol. Not speaking from a Christian perspective, obviously, there are different views within Christian within the Christian landscape on whether or not alcohol, whether or not alcohol is acceptable as far as what scripture says. But I'm just talking about from a human perspective, just because something can be used for ill and often is used for ill doesn't mean that we need to totally abstain. However, I say in the book, I think that if, if you find yourself hopelessly addicted or that this, that these platforms and the media that lives on these platforms is influencing you, you in some really unhealthy way, stepping way may be the best way to go. But I do think that Social media, here, here's the reason, the main reason I do not advocate for that as a primary form of response to like what I wrote or really any, any anti-social media sentiment out there, whether it's The Social Dilemma or any of the books that I reference. Like I would disagree with Jaron Lanier, who writes 10 arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now, because I would say deleting your social media accounts right now does not rid yourself of social media's influence on your life. 
period. I think it's a sort of like fake balm for an illness that you simply can't cure by doing that. Call it putting a bandaid on cancer or whatever trope you want to use. I think if you delete your social media accounts, you may be vastly less influenced by social media, perhaps less uh, prone to being misled by misinformation or being driven into some sort of tribe that can make you unnecessarily antagonistic toward other people. But I don't think that deleting social media accounts and logging off erases social media's influence from our lives. And I think there's a lot of people who think, oh, if I just delete my accounts or log off for a period of time, it'll just go away. And it's like, no, if you've lived in life offline for the last six to eight years, and you try to watch the evening news or read the newspaper or do any sort of like Luddite pre 21st century acts of engagement with media period, social media perforates all of those media platforms. So you, you simply like I, I speak, I mentioned this in the book, every Sunday night, I make dinner for our family, I make it throughout the week as well, but always on Sunday night. And I'll often call my 88 year old grandmother while I'm, I'm making dinner, and we talk on the phone, she's never used the internet in her life. And she has definitely never used social media. And, and it's funny, like I told her, Grandma, you, you, I don't know if you're going to be interested in this book because it may not make much sense to you. And so we talk and she will, though, she has friends who do use social media and she spends time with throughout the week. And she will bring up to me things that they tell her that they see on Facebook. And it, I think it's just a really good example. Like my grandmother doesn't have any social media accounts to delete. Yet, in fact, the other day, a month or so ago, she brought up to me a she was really fired up about a piece of fake news she saw on Facebook. I forget what it was at this point. But as I was I was doing some sleuthing as we spoke on the phone and figured out that the thing that she was fired up about was actually fake. Well, she was very mad about it. Like, like I could hear her anger in how she was talking. In fact, she said, Chris, is there a way for me to write a letter to Facebook and tell them how upset I am about how they're using this platform to suppress some speech. I forget what the thing was. And I was like, you know, grandma, I don't really think you can write a letter to Facebook. I don't think that's how this works. But here's, here's my 88 year grandmother who's never used social media and was just led astray by fake news on Facebook by word of mouth from a friend. So that's like one small example of why I, I just don't want to give this idea that if you just delete your accounts, the problem will go away. It won't. And while I think that can be a wise step for for having a more intentional, measured, and critical relationship with social media, I definitely want to advise against, oh, you have to be all bought in or you have to totally extricate yourself. There's no in-between. I think a better course of action, because this isn't going to go away, it's the water in which we swim, a better course of action is to simply learn how to engage with it in an intelligent, critical, intentional way and not use it passively to fill every bit of free time we have throughout our days. Obviously, I have social media. Twitter is probably uh, my 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 preferred poison because I write a lot about politics. And and social media has been very helpful for me professionally because I've been able to reach out to people, interview them, contact them. I believe I connected with you on Twitter, actually. And so I, that being said, I was very interested by your terminology of, of, of social media being bent towards evil because I thought that was such a fascinating way of putting it, right? If it's bent towards that way, then if you are using social media responsibly, as you lay out in the last several chapters of your book, you're actually not using it the way that the creators of it intended. And so although I would agree with you that, you know, you have to attempt to use social media responsibly, which I, I attempt to do and will admit that especially since the presidency of Trump when news broke online all the time, it's been harder and harder to kind of look away because, you know, real news is being broken in real time, you know, online. And that's where where it is actually happening. I wonder, though, if 
if it would be fair to say that the vast majority of people will not be able to use social media in a proper and Christian way due to the fact that it has been it's been designed essentially to prevent that, to take all of our time, to to make us angry, to, you know, even in terms of it was interesting because you had that whole section on on targeted advertising. But that's the sort of thing that can make somebody dissatisfied and covetous if they spend all their time, you know, looking at a screen as opposed to all the things they have. They're just constantly introduced to the things they don't have rather than the things they have. So while I would agree with you and that's what I try to do, would it be fair to say that it's unlikely that the vast majority of users will actually embark on that path and that for them it should be treated, you know, like a really addictive substance that should be stayed away from? Yes, I, I would say it is. I would, if if I were betting on whether or not a random selection of the population would use social media uh, productively and, and in a Christ-like way versus uh, destructively and in a non-Christ-like way, I would bet on the under, if you will. I would bet on people using it in a non-productive, non-Christ-like way before I'd bet on it in a positive or Christ-like way, in a Christian way that embodies the love and kindness we see in Christ and love for truth that we see in Christ. So yeah, definitely. And so yeah, I think the it is bent toward evil. And this is why I use the language of passivity versus intentionality. Yes, it should be. I, I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday and he likened it to when, when he had his, his, the talk with his son about sex. And he talked about, you know, let's talk about fire and fire in a fireplace or in a controlled environment is very powerful. It keeps you warm, builds atmosphere, all of that, you know, can cook food, but fire when it hops out of that fireplace or off of your grill and and onto the siding of your house or whatever, it can start to be quite destructive. And and sex in one proper environment is quite good and productive and 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 an important element to human flourishing. Sex out of that environment can be quite destructive. It can lead to destroying your own lives, destroying other people's lives. I think social media is very similar. I think it's sort of an apt parallel. Social media is quite similar. I think in the right environment, used intentionally with proper limits in place. We're talking like like I'm talking about if you have an iPhone, actually using the screen time functionality that they by the grace of God, started putting on iOS a number of years ago and giving your screen time password to somebody else who loves you, who can only give like that, your spouse or a friend, perhaps a, an accountability, an accountability partner in your church or something like that is the only one who, who can give you access to more social media time in a given day or, or week or whatever else. For instance, I make it so that I'm not allowed to use social media past a certain time of day or, or in the morning uh, I don't let myself use it before seven o'clock and I don't override my screen time password as often as I can. Better yet, it'd be best to give that password to a friend or family member who who does not let you in if they don't if they don't see a reason for you to be in. So I think like there are measures, whether technological, spiritual or or like communal, like community. I advocate in the book for about the the importance of having good friends and accountability partners. And those circles often overlap with people who can call you out if they see you acting a fool on Facebook or if they see that you're spending a ton of time. Like they should have the ability to see how much screen time you're spending on a particular app. Like if we're serious about this, some people might say, well, that's so invasive. Well, you're serious about using these platforms wisely or not. Because if we are, then we'll take what, whatever steps necessary to use these platforms wisely. But if we're going to whine and complain about how, oh, I don't want to give someone access to that or oh, that's just so personal, well, then then either don't use it or be okay using it in a non-wise way. And so I think that we have to be really intentional, just like the human heart is bent towards sin. That's the Christian theology of, of the human heart. The, the, we're not a blank slate prone to do good or prone to do evil. Social media platforms are bent towards sin or just you know destruction and ill in general. And so we have to 
use these platforms with intentionality and not passively. Because if we use them passively, we'll either be drawn down to destruction by how they're bent, by how we're bent, or some combination of the two. That's a a very good way of putting it because I look at at the younger generation getting on social media and I feel terrible for them because I didn't get Facebook till, till university. And I was immediately captured by it for all the reasons you lay out in your book, right? First, there's just being able to connect, you know, with, with all kinds of different communities. You're able to, you know, you know, comment on almost everything. Then with Twitter, you have access to sort of the thoughts of every politician and writer, depending on, on what your bent is, that would be mine. And I was, I was so relieved I never had it back in the day. Because the thing about being young is you don't realize how dumb you are until you're older. And you don't believe it until you're older and you're looking back. And kids are basically being empowered to make their worst decisions in a public and permanent way. And so I've increasingly grown towards the view that we should treat social media like we treat cars or cigarettes or alcohol or any of these other things that regardless of what you think of social media, it shouldn't be for the young. Like we shouldn't give them the capacity to destroy themselves in this way until they're at least somewhat old enough to understand the consequences of it, especially in a day and age where comments you made 10 to 15 years ago can have your professional career destroyed right at the culmination of, you know, years and years and years of working towards it. What is your thought on that? I agree. And I think that's one approach. In fact, I think that's a point Jonathan Haidt makes. I've seen him make in a few interviews and talks that he's done that we need to raise the age of of when students and, and teenagers can use these platforms. I think in some sense that's wise. And if you could enforce it, that would be great. I think uh, these platforms already have a hard time keeping kids under 13, which is what a lot of the my, like the base lowest level age for like Facebook and other platforms, I believe is 13. They already have a hard time keeping kids under 13 off their platforms. If you raise, if you raise that to 17, yeah, good luck. I mean, in a perfect world, yeah, you would, you would not let people use it until they get to college or until their brains are a little closer to being fully developed. I think even better is we don't crucify people for dumb stuff they did on the internet when they were 17. Like, I think even better than keeping them from using it, just not, obviously you would prefer them not making the mistakes to begin with. So in a perfect world, if you could absolutely bar anyone from using social media until they're 18, that'd be perfect. Like, I think that would be great. However, I've already established, I think that would be near impossible to actually implement. So I mean, I'm sure there are some ways you could do it, but it would be quite hard and probably take a really long time. So I think the next best case is let's assume that for in perpetuity as as students when I was in high school were doing and as students are doing today, they're going to make decisions and post things on the internet that can ruin their lives, you know, when they're 15, that can ruin their lives when they're 35. We have the power to not let that ruin their lives when they're 35. Like, I don't think we should cancel people, whatever language you want to use. I don't think we should hold people accountable when they're 35 for dumb, non-criminal stuff they did when they were 15. When you get to criminal, there's whole statute of limitations, all whatever. There's a whole other ball game. But like socially, if some 15-year-old says a bad word or posts pictures or whatever, whatever the the problems are that some young child or or barely adult at 17, 18, whatever decisions they make, I don't think we should let that ruin their lives when they're adults. Um, like, I just don't think that that follows. I think that's a really destructive path. And pretty soon, like, if the, if we go that route, if we go that route, and let's say, you know, the 17 year olds today, the 16 year olds today are doing things that are horribly morally objectionable that could somehow come to light in 20 years, you're going to have an entire generation of people who like, 
what can't get jobs can't like what what are you going to do and i i have a couple chapters as i'm sure you know on sort of cancel culture or accountability culture as it's sometimes called on the internet i have a couple chapters on that in the book and i just think that it it can't really deliver on its promises because like whose morality to to whose morality are you giving are you holding these people and those goalposts are always changing and i just think we should maybe be a little bit more gracious to young people or people in general who made mistakes, especially before they were adults. I mean, if we're talking about something somebody did two years ago when they were still an adult, yeah, that's maybe a different conversation. And I think there's gray here. But I think if you know if you're if you're you know uh, trying to get a 30 year old fired for something they did on the internet when they were 15, that was just like you know a bit coarse or a bit uncouth. I I sort of have a problem with that. And I think we should generally have a problem with that. And here's a, another thing to sort of dovetail directly into what you're saying is, is, as you explain in the book, social media is fundamentally performative because it's you're fundamentally attempting to get people's attention. And so the best way to do that, as you also point out in, in, in two of your chapters, uh, the way to get people's attention is to say shocking things, is to post shocking pictures, whether that be highly sexualized pictures or whether that be sort of profanity laced or expletive laced or just radical opinions, you name it. So on one hand, you have these platforms that are designed to elicit this kind of behavior, whether it be, you know, sexual harassment, whether it be, you know, whatever, just what, what does it take to get people's attention, especially in sort of the family guy generation where, where nothing is sacred anymore and everything has been mocked for a long time. You, we've really pushed the, the limit as to what constitutes shock. So on one hand, we encourage the behavior and then 10, 15 years later, we discipline them for having, you know, perpetrated this behavior to begin with, which is why I think it's so difficult for us to have any level of accountability because essentially we're counting on young people to not use the platforms the way they've been designed to be used, which I think is unfair for, for younger kids. Now, I, I agree with you completely on, on the issue of cancel culture, and I think that your book was bang on in what you described. And so now let me post to you what I think the problem with that is in terms of it being realistic is I've long thought that sort of cancel culture writ large and take everything from, you know, a whole bunch of people who aren't actually offended by Joe Rogan, but pretend to be for the express purpose of destroying his career, all the way to, I think, the very good manifestation of cancel culture, the Me Too movement, which, you know, exposed a lot of sexual predators. But the issue is, is that to a large degree, in my mind, at least, this is derived from the fact that as the, the standards imposed by Christianity on a culturally Christian country have collapsed and chaos ensued, we sought to reimpose new moral standards, except that we didn't actually put any mechanism for forgiveness into those standards. And so like, the fundamental, fundamental message of Christianity is, is forgiveness. There's a path to reconciliation. What you're sort of seeing is a, a neo-pagan reimposing of moral standards with no path to reconciliation or forgiveness. And I think that might be a sort of a tougher, a tougher paradigm to break than just telling people to grow up. What are your thoughts on that? I think you're exactly right. And I think it's been super interesting. Naturally, a lot of the um, folks that that talk about tech issues, like the the non-Christian folks who I read to inform what I write to help Christians, a lot of them are are not Christians. In fact, they lean more liberal than conservative because they tend to be younger and maybe out West kind of among the Silicon Valley culture and that sort of thing. And it's been fascinating both in that culture. And I, as part of my work and my interest in internet culture more broadly, not just what I write about in the book, but like, I want to know what's going on in video game streamer culture. I want to know like which YouTubers are popular and which YouTubers hate, which YouTubers and like which YouTubers. And like, I, I like keeping track of those things. A lot of people look at those things as sort of like teeny bopper gossip drama. That's not worth attention. And I really just see it as like 
cultural implications that will really ripple down five and 10 years down the road, even, even though they're incredibly important right now. Like I think what Mr. Beast is doing on YouTube right now, being the most popular YouTuber in the world, arguably is not only important because he gets tens or, or, 20s 30s of millions of views on all of his youtube videos but because i think it's going to transform entertainment in the decade and two decades to come i I look at all this stuff i pay attention to this stuff and it's fascinating that exactly what you said there's this sort of moral hierarchy this moral standard that nobody's quite agreed on but it's there and you don't really know it's there until somebody breaks it and then it's fascinating to see where the fractures happen around like what issues are are off limits, what issues you're allowed to be coarse about or, or, you know, make jokes about or things like that, especially as I watch some YouTubers make content. And it's like, what's allowed, what's not, nobody really knows. And then who decides when somebody should be held accountable to what end, like, what's the point? What are we trying to accomplish here? Like, are they, do they need to be banned from whatever platform they're on? Or if they have a real job, do they need to be fired from their real job? Like, what's the, the logical, like, at what point is the, is the social media mob satisfied? When have they gotten the head of their victim, if you will? Like, what what's the goal? Where's this go? And it's fascinating to me, as you've kind of described well, the difference between, you know, like Christian standards of morality, which are quite high and have been viewed as quite prudish by non-Christians, especially in regard to like sexuality or whatever else. Christians have an ethic of forgiveness, where if we can maintain that, we can look at what somebody's done and say, yeah, you were a real idiot 15 years ago on the internet or, or wherever, or even five minutes ago, not 15, not 15 years ago. You're, you're a real fool here, but we know that you're repentant. You, you've recognized that you messed up and you, you've expressed like, hey, I, yeah, I was a real fool here. I, I'm trying not to be that person anymore. or I know I'm not that person anymore. Will you help? Will, will you walk with me in this to help me not be that person and, and, and not ruin my life. The Christian message and the Christian ethic is, yeah, let's walk together. You recognize you were in the wrong as you did that. Let's walk together. The the prevailing message on the internet today is, oh, well, good. You finally recognize you're an idiot. Now you just live in your life being ruined. There's no hope for you. There's no uphill. You know, there's no way to go up from here. It's now you've you deserve your victimization because of how you victimized others based on your language or your conduct. And so I think that you've hit the nail on the head that perhaps one of the most distinct Christian witnesses moving forward in the years and decades to come as these sort of like tribalism, cancel culture waves keep tossing and turning is that we offer reconciliation and offer hope and offer forgiveness to people who make a fool of themselves and who are called to account for it um, rather than saying, Oh yeah, you were a fool back then or, or just now. Well, then you have no hope. You know, I think that's often the, the persona that Christians are given that we have these rules and that, that you're a, if you're a sinner, then, then you go to hell. Well, no, generally, at least the right Christian understanding. And I hope we communicate this wisely is that if you're a sinner, you have hope in Christ and you aren't bound for hell. You just have to recognize that you're, you're a sinner and, and that you have hope in Christ and not in your own work. And so I, I hope that that message of forgiveness and, and acceptance can be something that sets Christian apart in the years to come. The one other thing that I, I I thought you were completely correct about, but that I worried you were too idealistic about, is is so many of the people that are utilizing cancel culture are doing so with explicitly bad faith motives. So let's take the most recent example of of, of Joe Rogan, who you know was of course forced to apologize, et cetera, et cetera, because he had used the N word in the context of describing what people had said. 
And so, you know, skipping aside the con, like the actual controversy itself and whether he should have said it and he should have apologized and all that. Uh, the point that really struck me is that the people who spent, you know, hundreds of hours going through his podcast, looking for these things, weren't actually offended. They were weaponizing the appearance of being offended for the express purpose of getting rid of him, right? Like, it's like somebody who hunts through every imaginable back alley looking for somebody to call them, you know, something horribly racist and then claiming to be offended, even though you've been you've been looking for it. Like, these people don't genuinely believe that Joe Rogan is a racist person who looks down on, on people of color. What they want to do is they want to destroy him because he's, you know, a threat to the mainstream media or what have you. And so, unfortunately, it looks to me like cancel culture is is actually a progressive mechanism by which they enforce new moral standards. What's your view of cancel culture from that angle? I've listened to occasional Rogan interviews. I'm not like a regular listener. I, I value him as an interviewer. I think he tends to be a very insightful interviewer. And in fact, I've written about that before, but I've not kept up to date on all the back and forth. I just know there's been a lot of gyration and people, this person apologizing, this person, this person retorting or whatever. And I think, yeah, I, I agree with this idea. I agree that often popular person A is objectionable to the political left and progressives. I don't even mean like classical liberals who are open to many different ideas. Popular figure A is objectionable to progressives. And so when popular person A, in this case, Rogan or someone else, steps out of line or or somehow does something that could be more broadly objectionable, even beyond that group of progressives, because like there are plenty of things that, that that person could do that would that would hurt that group of progressives. But they, in order to get this person canceled or to go after them, they need to do something that has a broader appeal that, that has, that hurts more people than just that particular small sect. And so when this, when this popular person, a steps out of line in some way, in the case with Joe, it was, it was COVID misinformation as it was labeled. And so COVID misinformation is of concern to beyond just progressive. Even some folks in the middle don't like COVID misinformation as it was called. And so, when you have that, then it's it's like feeding season, if you will. It's like the pile on begins. So you have you have one thing that is potentially like an actual thing that that could that the cancel culture hat can be hung on a, a hook. And then once you have that, it's like, well, where can we find other things? Like let's let's dig up every person, every you know, every person he's ever interacted with. Was anything objectionable ever said to them or? Could it be twisted to be that way? Let's look at every piece of content they've ever created. How could that be twisted to be objectionable in some way? And it's just, it, it sort of becomes this, this waterfall, if you will, or I'm sure there's a better analogy for it, where once there's one sort of step out of line that might be broadly concerning beyond even the group that's politically against this person, then it becomes a sort of open season and a, and a dog pile of we're going to do everything we can to finish this person off. And that's like, it's the closest thing to a mob mentality I've ever seen. Like I'm not a professional sociologist, but I've read enough books about tribalism and mob mentalities and written by very smart sociologists. And I'm like, man, I mean, this is, and this, that's why I kind of rail on it in the book. I'm like, it's, it's a cowardly version of, of a mob because you're not actually putting anything on the line yourself. You're grabbing a virtual torch and a virtual pitchfork. It's a lot easier than when people were actually grabbing torches and pitchforks back in the day. And so I think that, is really important that as Christians, or as just like wise social media users, whether you're a Christian or not, you don't let yourself get caught up in trying to deplatform someone or cancel someone 
for for like manufactured reasons whether whether or not those are legitimate or or not like i don't really care whether or not it's legitimate come to your own conclusions about whether or not somebody whether or not you should listen to so frankly let me say this a lot of us should be maybe a little bit less concerned about who gets platformed and who doesn't listen to whoever you listen to watch whoever you want to watch i just don't i I don't like this idea that we have to police our platforms all the time. Like let's leave that to whoever, whoever's actual like job it is. I just, part of the reason I've not commented on the Rogan thing, even though it's kind of in my space, given internet culture and such is like, I just don't want to like, I don't want to make those decisions for Spotify or anyone else. I want to let them make their decisions. And it's not like Rogan will be fine wherever he goes. Any, any person will be fine wherever they end up when, if they try to get deplatformed, I think. So I just think that, a lot of us should consume what we want to consume wisely and and be a little bit less concerned with these big decisions that we shouldn't we shouldn't be ignorant of them because they have big implications and and we should be we should be attentive to them but we shouldn't let them consume us like i think sometimes they do that's a really interesting angle because i i find that too like i don't listen to joe rogan i've listened when when ben shapiro goes on i'm always interested to watch sort of the traditionalist orthodox jew face off with you know an atheist person so i'm always interested in watching that sort of cultural exchange but one of the things i really dislike about the tribal instincts you talk about in the book is how it ends up getting christian people defending things that i don't think are particularly defensible so i'll give you i'll give you one example so the Daily Wire, it wants to get into creating what they call conservative entertainment. And and they their first film was called about, you know, a girl who fights back against school shooters. And it's basically this really gory flick where everybody shoots each other up. But like at one point, there's there's frontal nudity where the teacher has to take her shirt off. You see everything. It's brief, but you do. And I didn't watch it. I just checked actually the reviews to see, okay, what's contained in this conservative film, right? Uh, and why is it conservative? And then Ben Shapiro did this whole episode of like, they can't cancel this film and the mainstream ignored it. And so now we're publishing it. I'm like, but maybe, maybe it's just garbage though, because it contains pornographic imagery fused with violence that we should oppose for conservative reasons. And, and so I'm kind of also worried about that. Like, I know tons of people are like, oh yeah, no, we have to watch this because otherwise they're going to cancel it. I'm like, yeah, but like, I don't care. Like if somebody tries to cancel Howard Stern, I'm not going to start defending Howard Stern because like the, what he produces is, is gross. And yes, he has his talents as an interviewer, for example. But when Christians end up defending things just because other people want to cancel them, I think, A, we miss an opportunity for common ground because maybe there are moral standards we can still gather around and agree on. And two, I just, I don't, I don't want conservative to boil down to we defend what they don't like, even if it isn't conservative and it contains pornographic imagery fused with violence that's just not good for the christian mind i think so much too too much of our relationship with ideas period whether political philosophical pointless like sports whatever too many of our relationship with relationships with ideas today are reactionary and are related and, and are hinge upon what people with whom we disagree think i see this in a number of spaces in which i operate whether it's theological or i'll see it like like I said, I pay attention to like online streamer culture and like video game streamers. It's such a huge, such a huge driver of online internet culture today that like one, one big personality will like hyper dislike a game publisher, a game developer, a game. And so then everybody feels like they have to either agree with that person or, well, if he says that, then I'm, then I must feel oppositely. And I just think, yeah, I think it's really unhealthy. And I think it, I think it just like stunts the mind. And I think that 
like like you said, whether there are so many examples, I guess you could think of in the past decade, even of how conservatives or I'm, I don't pay attention to politics as much as you do, or as much as most people who listen to this or, or read our interview will. But I, I think I've seen enough to say that I've seen plenty of what you've described, where in an effort to maintain our particular side of conservatism, we have overly reacted to whatever the other side has endorsed. And so we find ourselves endorsing something that we don't even necessarily believe, but just because it feels opposite, it feels appropriate. And I don't think that that's wise, as you described. And I think the internet perpetuates that. I cite in the book uh, research done in the last couple of years on how outgroup animosity is the primary, is the, is the most prolific driver of traffic and engagement on social media. And outgroup animosity is when you are, as a social media user, being mean to people with whom you disagree, right? So like, if, if you and I were on the same side, but, but Johnny was on the other side, if I tweet about how dumb Johnny is, and then I tweet about how, how well, you're Jonathan too, that doesn't help. Okay, Timmy's on the other side. Okay, so if I tweet about how dumb Timmy is, but then I tweet about how nice and smart you are, my tweet about how dumb Timmy is is going to get way more engagement than my tweet about how nice you are. And that's just, it, the study was done on social media. I think it applies to social media, or sorry, it was done on Twitter. I think it applies to social media more broadly as well. And I think too, too much of us, too many of us are engaged in, in active outgroup animosity. And it's starting to shape how we think to the point where you just described, we start endorsing some documentary film because maybe it communicates the idea we want to communicate about a particular hot button issue, or just because we want to be able to publish and watch whatever we want. And we don't like our freedom, if you will want to call it that our freedom to consume whatever we want and publish whatever we want uh, begins to trump our desire to maintain a Christ-like or or just even conservative level of, of morality and values and ethics. So yeah, I think you're onto that. And I think I do think social media perpetuates that problem. So my final question is one that I've been trying to work through myself because I have a couple of young kids and they're fortunately a few years away from from wanting to be on social media. But one of the things I've I've increasingly been researching, just looking at the social media platforms I'm on and I'm on none of the new ones. I don't have Snapchat or TikTok or anything like that. But just looking at the ones I'm on is one of the dangers I see for Christian communities, especially is when you're trying to build an intentional Christian community while young people are also accessing social media is, is essentially it's, it's an opt out and it's an off ramp because if you're on, on, on some of these platforms, especially the newest ones like TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram, click on the video function and you're going to be watching what everybody else is as well. So it's very hard to be distinctive in, in your cultural approach. If you're on platforms that introduce you to everything all the time that everybody else is. And I wonder if it, if social media poses a, a distinct danger by introducing people to things um, way earlier than they can handle. When we talked about how their brains haven't been formed yet, but also sometimes I just wonder if you know, um, you know, my great grandparents or even my grandparents could spend fifteen minutes on on any one of these platforms 
if they would sort of be shocked and repulsed by a lot of what they see, a lot of the imagery, a lot of the videos that pop up without any prompting. And we can say, oh, you know, the older generation, they're very traditionalist, they're Luddite, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes I wonder, are, are we maybe desensitized? Is, is, is it that they were somehow just really, really conservative? Or is it that they were just more sanctified and more in tune to what actually constitutes immodesty, wickedness, and all these things? And that we've kind of lost sight of that because a lot of these things just simply don't bother us anymore. I think you're onto something for sure. In, in Amusing Ourselves to Death, to cite Postman again, he talks about how news began to travel via the telegraph and how the telegraph, which if you read, like if you go back and read his chapter on the telegraph and Amusing Ourselves to Death, really you can just substitute the word Twitter in place of telegraph throughout the whole chapter and it applies today. He writes, the news elicits from you a variety of opinions about which you can do nothing except for offer them as more news about which you can do nothing. Prior to the age of telegraphy, the information action ratio was sufficiently close so that most people had a sense of being able to control some of the contingency in their lives. What people knew had some action value. And I think he's right. Before you needed to know everything, you could, you could manage what you, you would read the daily newspaper and you could handle whatever you came across in the daily newspaper and maybe not even all of that. But you could say, oh, you know, I read in the daily newspaper that there's going to be a vote about a new zone, you know, a new school zone decision in my community. I can go to that tonight and, and cast my vote and make my voice heard. But today, if we engage on social media and consume news as you and I and plenty of millions of other people do every single day, you're bombarded with so much, whether it's news or, or even just like you were describing more like um, sensational videos of various kinds. You simply can't process it. He also says, Postman writes about the nightly news broadcast, a similar sentiment here. He said, it has not yet been demonstrated whether a culture can survive if it takes the measure of the world in 22 minutes. And it, I, I think, indeed, it may, one may say that it has not yet been demonstrated whether a culture can survive if it takes the measure of the world in a brief scroll of Twitter or popping over to Instagram Reels for five minutes. Like, yeah, maybe... Maybe we simply were not designed. Maybe, maybe we simply, or even if you're not a Christian and you just, you know, you're into, we just came from nothing and there was no actual design in who we are. Maybe we're not evolutionarily to the point where we can handle this yet. Whatever your worldview is, frankly, it doesn't matter. The question is, maybe, are, are we not quite at the point where we can handle everything that's bombarding us on our screens and in our feeds every single day. Like you can scroll TikTok for six hours and, and never come to the end of it. You can scroll Facebook for the same amount of time or Twitter. And guess what? You'll never come to the end and they'll say, Oh, there's nothing else for you to consume here. There's always more. There's always more. And I think whether it's consuming sensational content that could be borderline disgusting and reprehensible as you describe or just trying to stay up with what's going on in the world. Like, I mean, I, people have been saying that we're, that Russia is going to invade Ukraine for like the last three weeks. And I'm starting to wonder if they're ever going to do it. Like, I, not really, but you know what I mean? Like, it's it's almost like there's there's so much airspace or, or screen space that must be filled at all times that one must start to ask, maybe, may, are we maybe not made to consume this much content? Whether, whether or not it's negative or positive, frankly, like maybe we aren't designed to consume as much content as we are. And I think that's a good question. And I think that is, you know, beyond any sort of prudish ideal of whether or not something is, 
you know, disgusting or wicked, like, because people have different ideas of what those, what those things are, maybe just generally, we can all agree that we, we would be better off even a little bit better off if we just consumed a little less of whatever the content is we are consuming, however pure or wicked it may be. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time. Of course. Thanks for having me, man. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Chris Martin on his book, A Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to check out past shows or subscribe to catch future shows, head over to LifeSiteNews.com, click on the podcast tab, and from there you can check out all the other interviews we've had on current culture war issues, on the framework of the civilization that we currently live in, and what you can do to fight back against the post-Christian age. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope we'll see you again next week.